Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician, Dr. Robert Jackson. Papa, can you tell me a story? Do you really want me to tell you a story? (laughs) Well, you go get your brother and your sisters and I will tell you a story. Welcome to Devotions with Dr. Papa. I have a great story I want to share with you today, and it comes from the Old Testament, and it's about the life of a guy who was a scribe. His name was Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, there's a verse that talks about Ezra, and it describes him in this way. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. You have to understand that Ezra was in captivity. He was in Babylon. And while in Babylon, he determined in his heart, he purposed in his heart that he was going to study the law of the Lord. And more than that, he was going to practice it or obey it. Even though he was in a foreign land, he was not in his homeland of Israel. He was far, far away. But that didn't matter to him. He was going to study the law of the Lord He was going to obey the law of the Lord. But here's the deal. He wanted to be a missionary. He wanted to go back to Israel, to his homeland, and to teach God's law, God's statutes and ordinances. Where? The verse says, in Israel. He realized that there were folks back home who were suffering a famine of knowing the word of the Lord. And he wanted to go there to teach his people the law of the Lord. So Ezra wanted to be a missionary to his own people to teach them the law of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that God didn't just pick anybody. He didn't pick a a homeless slacker off the streets and say, hey, I want you to go back to Israel and teach. He didn't pick an alcoholic up out of the slums there in, in Babylon and say, hey, I want you to go back to Israel to teach. No, he picked a unique, qualified individual. Now, what were Ezra's qualifications? Well, the verse tells us he was studious. He studied the law. He was very disciplined. To be a good student of the word, you have to be disciplined. And he was obedient. He was not somebody who just studied it and then filed it away somewhere, but he applied it to his life. He was obedient to the law of the Lord in his own personal life. And then he had this commitment. He was committed to go back to Israel to teach God's law in his homeland. Well, for whatever reason, the king, where he was, I think it was uh, Artaxerxes, here in verse 11, it tells us that Artaxerxes issued a decree on behalf of this scribe, whose name was Ezra, to allow him to go back to Israel. And he also uh, gave back to him all the articles that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen many years before. All of them were still in storage. And there were golden bowls and golden utensils that belonged in the temple. And so he gave all of those to Ezra to take back to Israel. And he wrote a decree that there should be no interference whatsoever with Ezra's mission. And so Ezra made mention of the king's kindness. In 
chapter 7 and verse uh, 27 and 28, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Now, Artaxerxes was a pagan king. What interest did he have in Israel or its prosperity? Well, I'm not sure, except that, as Ezra says, God put it in his heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Now, saying that implies that there was opposition, that there were those who were not all in on the king's decree. And God put it in the king's heart to favor Ezra and his expedition in the presence of the king's counselors and the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now, that phrase, the good hand of my God upon me, occurs multiple times in the book of Ezra. Why in the world do you think the good hand of his God was upon him? Well, hearken back to chapter 7 and verse 10, where it talks about him being obedient to the word of God. I promise you that when you and I are faithful to God, that God will find you and the favor of God will rest upon you. Not only was it God's grace, but Ezra's faithfulness was a factor. In Second Chronicles, the Bible tells us that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the land, looking for him whose heart is what? Say it with me, fully devoted to him. Ezra was such a man. His heart was fully devoted to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, the challenge is for you and me to be like Ezra with a heart fully devoted to God. Men and women who study the Word, who obey the Word, and who are committed to teaching the statutes and ordinances of God to our children and our grandchildren. Well, let's go on. In chapter 8, the Bible tells us that Ezra proclaimed a fast. You see, he was a man of prayer. And before they embarked on their journey, and it was a four-month journey. It was not a short trip. It was a, da a dangerous trip. And there were marauders and robbers that they had to avoid. And so they proclaimed a fast. And it tells us that this Ezra was not just a man of the word, but he was a man of prayer. And he trusted in God rather than in man. He didn't ask the king for an armed um, consort. He asked God to be the one to protect them on the way. Now, was his trust misplaced? Oh, no. Verse 31 tells us that they arrived safely with God's hand of protection upon them. Well, then move along to chapter 9, verse 1 through 4, which is very, very interesting because it tells what happened when he arrives. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes, those were the rulers, approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, 
the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Now why? Why would he be appalled? Because it was because of this very thing, this very act of disobedience, that the children of Israel were carried into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. And the very thing that caused the destruction of Israel is the very thing that the leaders, the rulers, and the priests were committing. The sin of intermarrying with the pagan peoples around them. The pagan peoples practiced abominations that God had driven them out of the promised land in the first place. And here they were intermarrying with people who worshipped false gods and sacrificed their children in the fire. The Bible says a thing that had never even entered into the mind of God. It was such a terrible abomination. And here they were marrying in to the families of these pagan peoples. And Ezra sat down on the ground appalled. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sat down on the ground appalled because of the sin around you in your own life or the life of a family or the life of your nation? Well, I'll tell you, I remember the very first time I sat down appalled. I was, it was after my second year of medical school. And I was reading a book by C. Everett Coop. He was a Surgeon General of the United States at that time. He was a pediatric neurosurgeon. He was the first doctor in the whole world to successfully separate Siamese twins. And he had written a book entitled The Right to Live, The Right to Die. It was a pro-life book. And he described in graphic detail what abortion was like. He described saline abortions. And he described uh, all manner of different types of abortions that were prevalent at that time. And I want you to know that for more than a week, I sat down appalled. I was a counselor for a bunch of teenagers at a conference. And the whole week, I was shaken. I was emotionally trembling. And it was a pivotal moment in my life. It changed the trajectory of my entire life. And after reading that book and absorbing the information in that book, I became a pro-life Christian. But it began with me sitting down for an entire week and being gripped by the truth in that book, being appalled by the information that I learned in that book. So Christian listener, when was the last time that you sat down on the ground appalled by the sin in your own life or a family member's life or the sin of our nation. Now, Ezra was not the only one that was appalled. 
In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 25 through 28, the Bible tells us when Nehemiah, Ezra's contemporary, found out about this intermarrying with the, uh, the pagan peoples, that he was so upset that he began to, the Bible says, I can, this is Nehemiah speaking, I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. You see, Nehemiah understood the gravity of that sin. Ezra understood the gravity of that sin. Ezra was appalled, and Nehemiah was provoked. And so you and I should be appalled and provoked by the sin that is around us. Well, let's move on. In Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 through 15, we see Ezra's prayer of confession. Ezra fell on his knees and he stretched out his arms and he uttered an eloquent, emotional, heartfelt prayer of confession that should be a guide to every one of us. It's as applicable to us today as it was to them in their day. So let's just walk through this prayer very quickly and talk about it. Ezra's prayer in verse 6, the Bible says that Ezra speaks and says that he is ashamed and embarrassed. Let me read it to you. He said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. (laughs) My brothers and my sisters, should we not be the same when we consider the spiritual decadence in America Just consider the sodomites marching in our streets, demanding equal rights. Every corporation has diversity training, instructing employees to be accepting of LGBTQ. Our society is embarrassing, or I'm sorry, embracing their extreme and sinful lifestyles, which is contrary to the word of God. Bitter has become sweet, evil has become good, and we should be embarrassed and ashamed. Why? Because the salt has lost its savor, and the light is becoming dark. Just consider pornography that is freely available on every computer and every handheld device. Barna tells us that 60% of church-going men admit to some degree of addiction to pornography, which brings rottenness to their spiritual life. Alcohol and drug abuse is eating out the soul of our nation and destroying families every day. Just last week, a, a young mom was in my office crying bitterly because her 23-year-old niece was killed by a drunken driver at 4 o'clock in the afternoon 
We should be ashamed and embarrassed to even look up to heaven. Indeed, our sins are over our heads. And then in verse 7, he says, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. You see, Israel was in captivity due to their sins, the sins of their forefathers. America is in decline, both morally, economically, militarily, in every way due to our collective sin. And I know many of you listening to me will say, well, well, Doc, speak for yourself. I don't do any of those things. I don't do any of those sinful things. Listen, I'm sure there were many self-righteous families in Israel also that were in dismay and disbelief as they were carried off naked and bare into captivity. The collapse of our culture will affect you and your children and your grandchildren. And it will, and it will be because you and me, the grandparents, were not the salt and light that God called us to be. Therefore, the culture has drifted into darkness and rotted away. Because like Hezekiah, we are content that the predicted destructive destruction and captivity will come in the next generation. Well, keep reading. In verse 10, Ezra asks the question. He says, what then shall we say to all of this? And I ask the question, what shall we say? What can we say? My suggestion is that we plead no contest. We plead guilty because we have forsaken your commandment. That's what Ezra said. We as a people have forsaken your commandment. He confessed it to God. We, brothers and sisters, must confess to God that we have forsaken his commandments. And then verse 11 through 14, Ezra gives a very specific confession of their sin of intermarrying with the peoples of that land. And I would suggest that we, as God-fearing Christian folks, specifically confess our personal sin, our family sins, and the sins of our nation. And then in verse 15, Ezra says, You, O God, are righteous. And, I, and, he, and he, says to, he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. No one can stand before you because of this. And that's where we are. How can we stand before a holy God? You see, shall not the righteous judge of all the earth do right? God deals with all men and all nations with perfect equity, perfect faithfulness, perfect righteousness. And we just like Ezra's people, we are in our guilt and no one can stand before him. Well, I want us to understand that Ezra's grief and confession provoked a revival. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says that a large crowd 
of people who were weeping bitterly gathered around Ezra as he was praying. And they began to confess their own sin. You see, his personal grief, his personal confession led to a corporate confession of sin, a corporate grief that led to confession. And then their confession led to a commitment on their part to do what was right. And then it led to a submission. In other words, they said to him, you tell us what to do and we will do it. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand that with true heart transformation comes submission to authority. That means authority to the civil authorities that God has placed over us, the church authorities that God has put in our lives, and the family authorities that exist in our lives. For example, let me just give you a historical perspective. Way back in the Welsh Revival, in the 1700s, there were so many people whose lives had been totally transformed by the gospel that all of the local jails had been completely emptied out and the constables had nothing to do. Why? Because there was true heart transformation in the life of so many people. They were submitting themselves to the civil authorities. Now, could you imagine that happening in America, that all of the prisons were emptied out because everyone was submitting themselves to the authority of God and to the civil authorities? Now, that would be an amazing revival. And then in verses 10 through 12, the Bible says that the folks went to Ezra and said to him, we will confess our sins and we will do his will. Before even they said to this, they, they went to Ezra and they said, Arise, for this matter is your personal responsibility, but we will be with you. And they said to him, Be courageous and act. Oh my goodness. They went to Ezra, a foreigner who had just come to their land, and they looked at him and said, Be courageous and act. Do something. Stand up and lead us. And then in verses 10 through 12, the folks said, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. You see, they confessed and they repented, and they were willing to bring forth fruit in keeping with righteousness. There you go. There's a revival in the making. The people are confessing. They're making plans and making commitments to do what is right. Wouldn't it be nice if we could spark a revival like that in our own community? Let me ask you, what would it take? Well, it takes genuine grief and sorrow over sin. And only Holy Spirit can create that in our hearts. But we must bend our knee and humble our heart, as Ezra did, and cry out to the Lord with a genuine confession of our sin. The second thing is just that, genuine confession of our personal sin and our personal contribution to the sin of our nation. Thirdly, there has to be a turning away from personal sin. I have to take responsibility for my sin. 
and I have to repent of my own sin. As the song says, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And then I have to put away all foreign gods. Over and over and over you hear that phrase in the Old Testament where the prophets would say to the people to put away your foreign gods. What's an idol? What's a foreign god in your life or mine? It's anything that interferes with the true, wholehearted devotion to God. Now, I don't know what that is in your life. It can be anything from from excessive devotion to television or the Internet or your hobbies or other relationships in your life. It can be just about anything, anything that distracts you or deters you from a wholehearted devotion to God can be an idol in your life. And the prophet says, put away your foreign gods. Repent and turn away from anything that distracts you from a wholehearted devotion to God. And more than that, it requires corporate prayer. You see, these folks came together as a unity, as a group, and they came to Ezra and they prayed, they confessed their sins as a nation, as a group. And their confession, Ezra's prayer and Ezra's confession was not alone, and, and, but he was the leader. And somebody has to be the leader. So here's my challenge to you and me. Ezra was a priest who determined to study the word of the Lord and to obey it. You and I are also priests. The Bible tells us that we are a royal priesthood. You are God's representative in your family and in your community and in your nation. The people came to Ezra and said, be courageous and act. My challenge to you and to me is that like Ezra, we should be committed to the word committed to obeying the word, we should be courageous and we should act as the priest in our nation, the priest in our community, the priest in our home that's willing to confess our own sins, confess the sins of our nation, and lead our individual circle of influence in a personal revival. Be courageous and act. This is Carlotta, Dr. Jackson's wife, thanking you for listening to More Than Medicine. If you have liked our podcast, would you mind leaving a review telling us and others how our show has influenced your life? This lets us know that you are indeed listening and that others may want to as well. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information about the Jackson Family Ministry, Dr. Jackson's books, or to schedule a speaking engagement, go to their Facebook page, Instagram, or their webpage at jacksonfamilyministry.com. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Production at bobsloan.com.